Can I welcome you all to the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs? Uh, I'm your moderator for today. My name is Diane Pointer. I know many of you. It's good to see you all here. Uh, the eroding state of healthcare in Alberta. What is happening to healthcare in Alberta? We're concerned about uh, what's going on, and with the uh, recession taking place, will there be more cuts? Is the government looking at a backdoor way of introducing more and more privatization? Heather will address those concerns. I would like to introduce, please, Heather Smith. She's come down from Edmonton to uh, address this session. Heather is president of the United Nurses of Alberta. She's also a long, long, long time, I think probably a founding member of Friends of Medicare. She uh, is well acknowledged throughout Canada for all her efforts in um, representing uh, people and uh, standing up for public health care. Heather Smith, please. Now, I, I personally work best and like, uh, feel a, most, uh, I get a lot more information communicated in a question and answer, but I do have a little slideshow for you, which is uh, a little bit different for me in terms of uh, uh, discussions, but I have a little slideshow, and you'll see the front screen of it says the Alberta Health Services, and the reason I have this is because in just a couple of weeks, Alberta Health Services is, of course, going to be officially the entity controlling all delivery of health services here in the province. This is the, the new, single, province-wide regional health authority. So a uh, lot of questions, a lot, a lot of questions from individuals within the system in terms of, of where we're going to be going. Um, so a little bit about Alberta Health Services, what we know so far, uh, a little bit on the directions that Alberta Healthcare um, is in our view taking and how much of it is secret, what's really going on here and what we need to do about it. Okay. Just a quick reminder, uh, pre-1994, we uh, had in excess of 200 uh, individual hospital boards across the province. Uh, you had several um, hospital boards in, in this region. Um, and in 1994, we went to 17 health regions. In uh, 2004, we went down to nine, and you still maintained in Lethbridge, the uh, Chinook Health Region. And in 2008, the government announced quite suddenly, uh, quite unexpectedly after the provincial election, because I don't recall any discussion about it during the election, that we were in fact going to go down to one region, and that's what officially hap happens April 1. Of course, uh, a little bit more of the history, and we didn't start with any elected members to the health boards, but we did regional health boards. There was a period of time when there were some seats that were elected, and then, of course, in 2001, uh, that they were all just uh, removed. Um, just to note that each changed on, on, in terms of today's health board, um, you know, there's been some criticism that the not only are they all appointed, but two of them aren't even living in the province. One lives in Toronto and one lives in the States. And that's who's in charge. The super board, we call them Bob, uh, big old board, uh, that's the case today. Each change, I say here, has created uh, upheaval and paralysis. Um, since last year's announcement, uh, particularly with the firing of the elimination 
of all of the CEOs, and I think quite unexpectedly for the CEOs as well, uh, there has been some degree of paralysis. Um, Decision-making is, is, uh, is very difficult. Uh, we have actually the acting CEO uh, of the board, of the province-wide board, uh, seems to be involved in decisions such as whether or not a nurse working here in Lethbridge can get a day off to go to an educational, which doesn't seem appropriate to me. Um, but things such as uh, physicians have commented that equipment and uh, new technologies that they had hoped to bring into uh, acute care practices in terms of the hospitals and stuff, just everything uh, stopped after those announcements. And, of course, there has been absolutely no real analysis on the impact of patients, uh, residents, and clients. Now, this is the mission statement of uh, the new board. It's to provide a patient-focused health system that is accessible and sustainable for all Albertans. Lovely. I mean, that's, that sounds nice. Uh, there are a few words that I need you to sort of keep in mind as, as we talk today. One is patient-focused, and the other is accessible, and the third is sustainable. Okay. Patient focus. We're not talking what we, Diane and I and others in this room remember as patient focused care, which I thought was what all care was supposed to be. Patient focused health system. So, a uh, question that we, I'm basically asking are, are we getting more integration um, with this? Um, and what are the changes going to, to actually mean? And I point out we had, you know, the, we went down to nine boards in 2004, just over four years ago. Um, in fact, not. It will probably be five years this um, this year, this March or April. But it takes years for each of these reorganizations to actually settle down. The first elimination of all of the health hospital boards created massive confusion and. You know, some of them never even finished, uh, some areas of the province never finished uh, resettling after the first reorganization, never mind when they went to nine boards, and now we're going down to one. And I've met with the interim CEO and the in individual who is in charge of all of the care, um, and their, their projections is that it's going to take anywhere up to, you know, one to three years to merge policies and practices across the province, and as much as five to seven years. Five to seven years is what they're predicting to be able to bring together IT and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, if you look at it, you know, there could be some legitimate questions as to whether or not we sort of leaped too often, too fast, in terms of really being able to assess it. Um, regionalization was supposed to create efficiencies, and I will tell you, from my perspective, uh, regionalization has been good uh, for various things in Alberta because I look at, you know, other provinces who are have not done it or who have uh, struggled or are struggling now. Ontario, for instance, is just introducing um, the equivalent of regions. Some provinces, Saskatchewan and New Brunswick, had higher numbers and have come down. New Brunswick, of course, is down to two. So there's, you know, there should be some real assessment of what has happened and why those were necessary and what was the impact on organizations responsible now, the, the regions for delivering care. But um, we did get some, uh, I think, important integration and efficiencies around the uh, combining or bringing together more directly, more concretely, community-based service delivery and acute care services, um, just for one. 
Of course, uh, decision-making in terms of, of close to the citizenry or close to the people has now been totally removed. So we call Bob, Bob the big old board, and of course this summer we had another change, last summer we had another change in what we're calling St. Bob, and that affected you here, which is when the Catholic facilities all got together in, in their own grouping, um, uh, Covenant Health. Uh, so, And that, between Covenant Health and uh, the Alberta Health Services, that, that province-wide board, that probably employs about 95 to 98% of the members I represent, but about 95 to 98% of the nurses working in, in uh, patient, resident, client care here in the province. Now this, and I'm going to go through these quite quickly because I know Diane will be holding up her fingers to tell me something, but uh, and hopefully it's just the time left. But... Um, what this is, is the, this is the big org chart for Bob, okay? Now, those of you who are uh, computer savvy and do the internet kind of thing, you should go and check out the Alberta Health Services uh, website. Um, I've checked it uh, every day for the last three weeks, waiting for the new org chart to come up, and it just says that it's under transition. But this was one from January, February, uh, and, and this is the big the big picture with, of course, the uh, Alberta Minister of Health and Wellness at the top, the Alberta Health Services Board, those people I told you all appointed to not living in the province, and then the actual uh, network, Alberta Health Services, with the CEO who has just been, uh, was named last month, Stephen Duckett um, from Australia. And then under that you have the, this is the, the large uh, focus of the org chart in terms of uh, where things are going to be now. I don't have a fancy pointer, so I'm just going to do it this way. Um, that column is basically, that's all the care. That's, that's where all of the, the care uh, happens, and the person in the top box there is Patty Mead, who until uh, the announcement of the single province-wide region was, in fact, Deputy Minister of Health. Okay, I'll just quickly go through and this is Patty Mead's, um, showing uh, Patty Mead's uh, areas. And I'm going to have to use the other mic. I just point, want to point out a few things. Because we've talked about integration, and the big question that comes up is, in fact, are we moving towards more silos? And there's another breakout of this, but this is basically the, uh, what's called the urban uh, column, and this is the uh, community and rural. So community and rural is everything. Um, here in Lethbridge, for instance, you would have something that falls under the, I think it's under the urban hospitals, which would be the Lethbridge Regional, but you would have uh, as well, um, name another smaller facility close by here. Tabor. Tabor would fall under this one, even though right now they are under, they are joined under the same region, or they, like today they are, under the new plan. The regional goes here and Tabor goes there. Uh, community is there as well. Now, so it gets, you can get these things off the website. I'm not going to spend a lot of attention. This is, and that's where, see, that's where the Lethbridge Regional comes up. That's where 
the rural and community services fall is over there. Now, those are rural and community, and it's not real um, heartwarming to us, and to us I mean particularly nurses, um, that the individual responsible for all of this is going to be Pam, who's from actually your region, Pam Whitnick. But um, she has been, you know, this region has, has uh, led the province in certain changes in systems, particularly long-term care, that we are not anxious to see uh, repeated across the province. And that's just a, a breakout of um, the acute care. We, I won't stick on that because I want to get through the, the rest of these things here. And this is also part of it. So you have Lethbridge Hospital in one column with Grand Prairie with a number of others. You have your Tabor over in another, and then you have something called the Continuum of Care, the Zone. And the zones are basically uh, a, a collection of the current regions, for instance, the south zone that's highlighted there will basically be the current um, uh, Chinook and Palliser. But in, and they are delivering community-based services. This is community and rural, right? Is, is so the question is, how do you bring together the Lethbridge Regional with the community and rural zone? If they're different reporting, um, and we've asked that question and nobody is sure. Uh, in fact, I got two different answers at a meeting I was at recently where somebody here from Chinook was saying that they were involved in some stuff and she identified herself as part of the zone um, and they were doing some stuff and it included the Lethbridge Regional. And I said, well, it can include the Lethbridge Regional because that's in a different, uh, it's in a different uh, reporting structure, structure entirely. And she said, oh, yes, no, that they, the zone will include the Lethbridge Regional and everything else and and that in Edmonton, where the Mazankowski is in, uh, the University Hospital is in one, the Royal Alec is in another, and then we still have the zones, she's saying, oh, they'll all be controlled or done through the zone. And as she's saying this, the person from Edmonton is doing this. No, no, that's not the way it's going to work. So, um, so weeks away from the big, the big, what, I don't know if it's a big bang or it's not going to be a big bang because uh, they don't know what is going to happen. But uh, we're weeks away from the official uh, elimination of all of the regions, total disestablishment, Alberta Health Services. This is their plan, and we don't know, and they don't know what that means. Ah, yeah. Somebody was telling me that they called, uh, recently called to book a hotel room in Edmonton, and... Um, the, uh, the shadow, uh, Lacombe in Edmonton, and, and the person said, uh, oh, you're booking for the nurses. You're a nurse. And she said, yeah. And, well, what's the job situation like in Canada? And she said, what? <laughs> um, she was talking to somebody from the Philippines. Okay. Okay. This is a little bit about Stephen Duckett. Um, he is the new CEO. He is the top man. He hasn't actually started his job yet. He is to start... Um, March 23rd, he's a prominent health economist. Uh, he's been on the National Health and Hospitals Royal Commission, CEO for Healthcare Improvement, National Secretary Department of Human Services and Health. And alert, initial um, information seems to be fairly uh, positive about Mr. Duckett. 
which begs the question, how did he even get hired? <laughs> but um, he's, he has, was co- quoted in the, uh, the journal of, uh, medical journal saying, the Australian experience suggests that Canadians should be wary about allowing a significant private sector to develop in Canada, particularly if it seeks the level of subsidy that the Australian private sector has been able to garner in Australia, uh, including private insurance. So, I mean, that's not a bad thing, and I understand uh, that he actually, uh, and this will flip through some slides, but he has actually uh, said that uh, he hasn't seen in his experience in Australia a lot of efficiencies from closing of rural facilities. So, um, He's very much into the whole uh, safety, and that's what our colleagues are saying from Australia, safety, patient safety, staff safety. Um, But in Australia, and this is maybe linked to part of his uh, reason for coming, in Australia he was part of introducing a pay-for-performance component into hospitals instead of global budgeting, pay for performance, which uh, raises a whole lot of concerns, and we could spend a whole a couple of hours just talking about that. But it's basically there's reimbursement or incentives to uh, deliver certain types of services or to speed up certain services, uh, speeding up things like emergency departments, which is uh, – Part of what has happened in BC where there's been incentives for shortening the uh, length of time in emergency simply means that you hide it, you push it out, you put it up on the wards. And in the cases here in Alberta now, with overcapacity, we no longer have space on the wards and in the uh, sunrooms and stuff. So now we're pushing it out of the urban centers. It's into the the rural centers. And yesterday, rural uh, facilities around here were telling their own stories about their 107% capacity uh, all the time. Um, what he has said about the pay for performance is that uh, as although no data exists uh, yet as to the impact, so we're doing something that other people have been doing, not because it's been, uh, you know, critically evaluated as good, but uh, pay for performance appears to be gaining widespread if somewhat reluctant acceptance. And another phrasing for what pay for performance is, piecework health funding. You get paid by the piece. So the faster you get the widgets through, the faster, uh, the more you get paid. We've also called it patient-focused funding. And remember that first slide I told you to look at those words, patient-focused, patient-focused funding. Okay. Um, Vitals look good, yeah. Patient-focused, our concern, we believe that patient focused and this is actually not, this is what Brian Day said, Patient-focused funding where the money follows the patient will drastically improve the performance and efficiency and accountability of hospitals. Um, I don't know where Mr. Day got the evidence of of such a thing. And, of course, Dr. Day was the former uh, uh, president of the Canadian Medical Association, caused a lot of controversy in his promotion of private delivery, private clinics. But the the patient-focused funding, the hope of people like Mr. Day is that because the funding goes with the patient, that they can uh, more easily direct patients to private uh, physician facilities, etc. Um, even Ron Leipert says it's a good idea, and it would certainly mean a change from global budgets to the fee for services. And of course, that was part of what was happened, what they did with long-term care. Right, long-term care auxiliary hospitals used to have global budget, and basically they went to. Uh, uh, and from global budgets to uh, piecemeal. 
Okay. And the question is, is Mr. Duckett here to sort of set up the transition uh, in terms of pay for performance, patient-focused funding as a way of increasing the increasingly moving items out of facilities? Okay. Who's doing the planning? Uh, well, Alberta Health has uh, been decimated so much in the last 15 years that there is virtually no capacity for planning. What we have had instead are we're using... Um, Companies, Deloitte, uh, which actually has an office for health business developments in Alberta, health business development, um, and they did the rural authority um, audits um, in 2006-2007, which were released until last year. We also had the McKinsey, so we're, we're hiring consulting firms to tell us how we might change our our system or at least change the government's messaging maybe. We're hiring consulting firms because we don't have our own capacity. What Deloitte said on the rural, and this came out, uh, you know, as I said, last year, that they recommended closing or converting rural facilities to urgent care centers. Uh, what McKinsey said, and the, the McKinsey report is just uh, incredible. The government had it for months and refused to release it, finally did last December, but it's an incredibly sanitized version of it. And I, it has to be. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but you don't get reports and a $2.2 million report from consultants that they don't even put their name on, Right. Uh, this was that. That's the front page of that. And uh, in the McKinsey, what they said on rurals is that it uh, shows that 24 hospitals in Alberta deliver fewer than 50 babies per year, well below what they consider a minimum threshold of 500. Of those, 17 are facilities with fewer than 20 beds. This is a criteria that's in the McKinsey report to be used. And I'm, again, I, it's too small for you to read it all, but what it talks along the top, in the, if you look at that second blue box, that is driving distance to next facility. Okay? Whether it's 25, 50, or 75, that would be part of the criteria to be used in determining whether facilities stay open, stay, are, stay utilized as acute care um, looking at whether or not, because of where they are and what they do, whether they have above average cost per case, uh, et cetera. So that accessible word from that mission statement becomes important because accessibility here in Alberta could very much be linked to distance. And this is a map that's on the back of the Friends of Medicare um, brochures I brought with me, and those are facilities in Alberta with a 50-kilometer uh, circle drawn around them. And so if, you're, if they take the 50-kilometer threshold, uh, a lot of facilities here in the province could be looking at diminished or eliminated uh, services. Then we had, of course, the government's plan, which came out in December, Vision 2020. Um, I think they need a little eye-checking. But anyways, uh, we call it in my office uh, Deja Vu a la McKinsey because, in fact, when the government's own plan came out, it had a whole lot of the same stuff that was in the McKinsey. Rural hospitals, looking at merging them and closing them, conversion of facilities to ambulatory care, shift from long-term care to supportive living and home care, which has been the whole focus of, of people out of this region, and as I said, is, is making us really unhappy. Dealing with, uh, and then there's all kinds of stuff about dealing with nursing and short staffages, short staff shortages. I'm not going to go into it unless you ask, but basically the, uh, in the 
in the government's uh, report, they're saying there is no shortage. You just have to make nurses work longer. Okay. Uh, so we have the standard government rhetoric in December. It's unsustainable. And it talks about increasing the availability and number of physician clinics. Okay. Pay, and remember, patient-focused funding. And here we have, let's increase the number of uh, private uh, facilities, moving more and more services out of uh, our acute care. Um, enhanced services and short-stay non-hospital facilities. Okay. Um, recruitment. Uh, well, there's some stuff around recruitment, but basically their, their goal of recruitment and eliminating the nursing shortage is we don't use nurses. And this region many years ago said that registered nurses were wasted in long-term care and said about pretty much eliminating them and changing to, from nursing homes to assisted living. Uh, the government's new plan is, is that if you, and they say they're expecting a shortage of, um, as many as 6,000. They admit in, the, in this document to at least 1,500, but it can all go away if nurses just work an extra day a week, and instead of using nurses, we just use unskilled uh, nursing care aides, okay, is, is basically. And, of course, promoting team-based nursing. Well, that's not a bad thing. Most people in this room knew, always did team nursing. That's what we do, and uh, that's not a problem for us, but to what extent the mix changes is important, right? And in many facilities, uh, you may see no registered nurses at all. Okay. Uh, two more concerning in, in things in that is increase the percentage of healthcare professionals working full-time. That's what I said. Change reimbursements. They want to punish people. They want to create disincentives for nurses anyways to work part-time. There's a lot of stuff in terms of potentials with the ambulances and going from a... Uh, a treat and transport to a treat and release, which, you know, some of this stuff may not be that bad, but where is any kind of, of uh, clarification as to where the costs then go? Who pays for it? If you, and increasingly, I understand, in nursing homes or long-term care facilities, if an ambulance is called, the, the uh, resident is not transported. The ambulance crew looks at them and says, no, we're not going to take you and, you know, do this. Um, overcapacity is a big issue in the system right now. So this is what Mr. Duckett is, is coming to. Um, and, uh, you know, and then we had, of course, a continuing care strategy. Diane's already given me her finger sign, so I'll just quickly go through this. But uh, the continuing care strategy, and I've actually in the last couple of days reread the, the Broda stra uh, strategy, the Broda report from 1999 and Diane Mirosh is from 1988. And it's just a continuation. It's a very slow, uh, you know, it's not that slow. They've made a lot of changes. But it's a continuation of the same kind of desire to offload costs, you know. In Broda's time, 1999, they were getting scared of the, uh, of the baby booners. So they, we have this one. This came out. Uh, I call it continuing to not care strategy versus continuing to care. It talks... Uh, and what it mostly is is the Chinookification is what we're calling it, where you disestablish nursing homes where there's skilled providers and assurances of skilled providers, and you have housing complexes, housing complexes assisted living, and you've transferred the costs. We had an interesting discussion at uh, my meeting here yesterday with nurses in terms of you know evaluating and them actually being able to say if that assisted living facility had had a nurse, 
These patients would not have had to have been transferred and admitted to this hospital for seven days or ten days or whatever length of time it was. So we are, in fact, creating false economies. We're transferring the cost to the individuals, but, in fact, in our total, total global health stuff, we're actually creating more costs by not providing skilled workers. Um, now, this is, I think, quite ironic, at least a lot of nurses laugh at this, is that the intent is to provide viable alternatives to facility-based care. I mean, nobody wants, nobody doesn't have to, doesn't need services and support, wants to go to, to uh, any other place in their home, but this suggests that they're going to, in some cases, allow people who are living in nursing homes, nursing homes, you have to be it's pretty high to be in a nursing home, to the, re, the choice to return to their home. You don't have the money. You don't have a choice, okay? Um, and this goes into the we're not building more long-term care beds. We're replacing nursing home beds with assisted living. We are intending, in fact, zero new long-term care beds, which means that they're private, uh, will be encouraged private, uh, the for-profit or not-for-profit in terms of pu public um, private partnerships, building facilities. They've uh, announced that uh, they're looking at removing caps um, uh, from fees and stuff. So it's, a, it's again, it's, it's a continuation of that massive downloading onto citizens, the individuals who need the services and their families. Um, they're proposing to outside partnerships. Oh, zero, okay. Um, and um, anyways, available long-term care. And accommodation fees or rent is set by the developer. This is, is, this is going to be a change, right? Instead of having government-restricted fees and stuff, looking at letting the, develop, the developers. So um, what we're saying is uh, it's just more of the, of the same, in, in effect. Mr. Stelmack and Mr. Leipert are not bringing a new uh, change, a change, uh, a positive change to health care. In fact, we suggest it's, it's continuing uh, the Mr. Klein's agenda. So, you know, we had the trial balloon just before Christmas, uh, just after Christmas, uh, delisting more. What can you do? Um, MLA accountability, absolutely imperative. Citizen action. It's all about citizen action. Bill 11, fight back. Bill 37, fight back. The way we even got Medicare in the first place is citizen action, and it's going to be citizen action again. Okay, contact friends of Medicare. And this is a PIA. They've got a new one on uh, Don't Cut Seniors Out, calling for universal pharmacare and public continuing care. And this basic message we need to be giving to government is stop trying to fool us, stop trying to use the economy as a cover, fix it. Okay? So that's it.